Our reading today comes from 1 Samuel 20. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David bowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest lest he be grieved. But truly as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go, that I might hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love for my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy, saying, Go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them, then you are to come. For as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal? either yesterday or today. Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city. My brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. 
For this reason he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives in the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, Run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Pray with me. Father God, we thank you for this word and for tracing the life of your servant David. And as we read these words and hear the the message today being expounded, Lord, may you open our eyes. May you send your spirit today that we might have your word opened into our very heart, that it may take root and flood our thoughts and our hearts and our hands, Lord, as we seek to go out and live the gospel as covenant members in your kingdom, Lord. We pray all of this in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Christian. Well, if you've uh, joined us since the beginning of the service, let me just once again welcome you. We're glad you're here. My name is Nate Sheard, and I get the privilege today to open up God's Word with you in this section of the Scripture for Samuel chapter 20. We're in the midst of a series that we've entitled King David, Shepherd Leader, and we're at a really strategic point in the unfolding of this story point that really talks about what covenant is all about. That word will become very important for us today. As we look at this particular text, it's like a lot of these historical narrative sections in the book of 1 Samuel, we don't have enough time to look at all of the details that are here in this text. That was a long text, 42 verses of text. That's a lot of text to be able to work through, and I'm going to do my best to restrain myself on everything I want to say about this text. And I'm going to try to focus on this key aspect of covenant that's here in this text, a term that we'll see come up a number of times in the life of David in the pages to come. And maybe to get us down that track a little ways, I want to tell you a bit of a story, a story that comes from Christine Pohl. Some of you might have read some of the books that Christine has written. She's written a wonderful book on hospitality. She's written another book on living in community, what that looks like. 
She, in one of those books, tells a story of an interview that she heard on the radio with a woman named Clarice. Uh, Clarice was 101 years old. So she lived a long life. And amazingly, Clarice was entrusted with the caring of her brother, who was 89 years old and who had suffered multiple strokes. She was simultaneously caring for her sister, who was 95 years old and was in the advanced stages of that terrible disease, Alzheimer's. When the interviewer asked Clarice why she did this, Clarice responded that she had made a promise a long time ago to both the Lord and to her brother and her sister, that if she was able, for as long as she was able, she would care for them. And she had done so for many years. Now, neither of Clarice's siblings at this particular point could talk anymore because of the varying diseases and struggles that they were facing. But the, interview asked, the interviewer asked Clarice, if they could talk, if they were able to speak, what do you think they would say? And she says, well, I have no idea what it is that they would say, but I think that they would say, thank you. Now, I want to ask you a question as we think about that story and as we look at this text. If you were before the Lord and all was known, and you were being honest with yourself, would you say that life primarily consists in your own personal ambitions and desires? Or does life primarily consist in keeping your promises? How would you answer? Does life primarily consist in your personal desires and ambitions? In other words, is it centered around you? Or is life primarily consist in the keeping of your promises, which means that it includes somebody other than you? It's really the difference between living for ourselves or living for someone else. Now, the reason I ask that question in part is that's a really big deal. That's a really big deal culturally for those of us who live in North America, for we have been weaned on a vision for culture and life that puts ourselves at the very center. Christopher Lash, in his very well-known national bestseller called The Culture of Narcissism, which is actually talking about the American culture. It's a critique from the late 1970s. He says that Americans have begun to believe the philosophy of the 19th century that they must have been reading for a long period of time, which was the philosophy of Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson, some of those guys known as the transcendentalists on the American scene. Uh, men who believed that you could strike a relationship to creation and with others brand new and cut off everything from the past and live, as it were, in the now with the self, unhindered and unencumbered. He says, well, we've begun to try to live that dream, according to Christopher Lash, and he says, what I'm going to call it is the imperial self, that we now live with a vision of life and a vision of self where we are the sun by which everything else orbits, and that the ideal of the, the, the American life is one that lives with unrestraint, that's unhindered, can pick up in a moment, do whatever it is that you desire and whatever it is you, that you wish, and hopefully keep your options open. 
Now, the reason I bring that up in light of the story of Clarice, who was caring for her brother and her sister, is I think that the life that Clarice was living is really different than the imperial self. And the life that she lives was one that was deeply encumbered, was bound in a life lived of sacrificial promise-keeping. A life, in other words, that was covenantal. Now, I think this passage is about covenant life. It's about what it means to live yoked with each other and with God and to be encumbered, to be in a very real sense hindered from becoming the self-actualized or realized self that we are very prone to drive towards. And I want to show you why I think covenant's at the center of this. By simply sketching out a bit of what happens here in 1 Samuel chapter 20 so that you can see that covenant really undergirds and informs what takes place on the page. It's why people weep. It's why people get angry. It's why people have peace. It's why people concoct plans. It's behind and in everything that's happening in this text. And I want to start by looking at verse 8. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 8. We read this verse. Therefore deal kindly with your servant. This is David speaking to Jonathan. For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. There it is. The word covenant. It shows up in verse 8. It'll show up a couple more times in our text. And there are three parties that are described in it. One being David, one being the Lord, and one being Jonathan. Now, the nature of covenantal relationship, as unfolds in the Scripture, includes usually those three parties. Two people in relationship with the Lord, bound together. It is, in other words, it's a church. A church is a gathering of people yoked together, covenantally, in relationship with the Lord. This centering piece, this covenant between David and Jonathan is what unfolds what takes place in the rest of the text. Let me show you that. From verse 8, the two men, David and Jonathan, spend the next few verses, verses 12 to 17, making a series of oaths and promises to each other based upon the covenant. It's already been forged. In verse 23... Both of the men conclude that the real glue of this covenant is not their ability to uphold it, but the Lord who drew them together. He's the glue that holds this covenant together, this relationship. In verse 30 and 31, Saul gets angry. And the reason Saul gets angry is because he sees that Jonathan cares a little too much in his estimation for David. And that as long as David is alive, Jonathan can pretty much the death certificate on his kingdom because David is kind of a big deal by this point and he is the biggest threat to the personal ambitions that Saul has for his son Jonathan and the whole passage concludes very interestingly with a benedictory call from David and Jonathan about peace 
go in peace, Jonathan says, which is a bit ironic. Because David is going into the wilderness fleeing for his life because he is no longer welcomed at the table of Saul because his life is being hunted down. And Jonathan says to him, go in peace. And what you can clearly see from verse 42 is that the peace that David is to experience is not from a circumstance but from covenant. But because there is something that is a place of stability in the middle of of instability, a place that he can find as a refuge in the midst of the storm. Covenant becomes that reality. Now, when you begin to see this text unfolding in and around this theme of covenant, we need to ask, what is this covenant? And what do we know about covenants? And what really makes them work? Uh, why, why is it that the Bible talks so much about them? And why is it that our redemption even centers on the language of covenant? Something we'll continue to look at in the days to come. I want to get just a little ways down the road today. I want to look at this passage in these three ways. I want you to see the strength of this covenant. I want you to see the commitments of this covenant. And I want you to see the heart of this covenant. All right? I want you to see the strength. I want you to see the commitments, and I want you to see the heart. And the heart's going to give birth to something we're going to talk about in a few weeks together. All right? Now, in order to see the strength of the covenant, I've got to at least remind you of where it is we've been. Some of you are going to know this. Others of you, maybe you're entering in the story for the first time today. And the realization is things are not great as we begin in 1 Samuel chapter 20 because there's been a lot of conflict. In chapter 17, David has just been successful in defeating Goliath. And he is a big time hero in the eyes of all of the Israelites. In fact, they've been writing number one hits based upon his victories. We have Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. People are cheering for him in the streets. If there was a runoff between Saul and David, hands down, David is going to win. He has clearly got the approval ratings. That's where we are with regards to David. But as often happens when we are successful, we become a target of opposition. That's exactly what's happened with David. David has become a threat to Saul. And we saw at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 18 that Saul has begun to take target at David, literally. David is coming into his presence playing his guitar, as it, as it were, the lyre. And he is making beautiful music for Saul to calm his soul. And Saul's over there fingering his spear. And then he hurls it in David's direction. He tries twice. And neither time does he, is he able to pin David. But David begins to draw the conclusion that maybe he doesn't want me around. Uh, maybe this music thing to, to soften and comfort his spirit is not working anymore. And if he was a little questioning of that in chapter 18, he's really questioning it by chapter 19, which we have not taken a look at, but I'm going to preach it to you real quick here. Chapter 19 is when Saul decides that he is going to send special operation troops to kill David in the middle of the night. Now, Michael, David's wife, who is also Saul's daughter, it's complicated, gets wind of what's going to happen and she creates a dummy, a mannequin of sorts. 
and stuffs a bunch of goat hairs in some pillows and puts them under, underneath the covers in the bed and wraps them in David's clothes and tells the soldiers and Saul that he's sick. And of course, they don't, they don't buy it, but they come in and they're tricked by Michael. And as she goes out, she lets David through a window and he escapes. And you know where he escapes? He escapes to 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 1. He escapes to Jonathan. That's where we are. Now, the reason all that background is important is because as David comes into chapter 20, he has a question. What have I done? What is my guilt? Why in the world is your father wanting to kill me? Is the question that sits on the table as he begins to ask why the murderous intent. And yet, what we see as the reader is it has nothing to do with David. David hasn't done anything wrong. In fact, David's been the most successful warrior that Saul's ever had. He's the golden boy. But that, again, of course, is the problem. That Saul has become threatened. It's full of jealousy. Filled with paranoia. And he is ready to destroy David because he is an arch rival now to the throne. Jonathan's not quite sure about this yet. And even as David is interacting with him... Jonathan pushes back. Listen, my father would tell me if he was up to killing you. I'm sure. I'm his chief executive counsel. He doesn't do anything without telling me. And David says to him, listen, he vows, we're told in the text. He takes an oath and he says, I'm not lying to you. He wants me dead. He wants my head. And we see that Jonathan ultimately believes David. Now I want to pause right there for a second. Because there's something really looming in the text that we've not talked about that we would quickly pass over. You know, we're thinking Jonathan and David, they're best friends, right? These guys are great. They're cool. They enjoy each other. Of course David would run to Jonathan. Well, of course. I want you to think about the strength of this covenant and actually the irony that David runs to Jonathan because I would like to argue that it's the riskiest move that David could make. I mean, there's almost no one more powerful in the regime of Saul than Saul's son, Jonathan. He is, after all, the crown prince. He's the successor to the throne. Next to Saul, Jonathan is the most powerful person. He would certainly be loyal to his father, Saul. If David runs to him and he says, listen, your father, the king, is after me, it would be nothing for Jonathan to call the soldiers over and call David a traitor and one who needs to be removed as a threat to his own father's throne. Add to this the fact that David is so popular, that he is clearly the crowd favorite in Israel at the time. He's already been anointed, though he's not yet serving as king. He's the most beloved, which is to say that David is the greatest threat to Jonathan ever becoming king. In one sense... David is the greatest threat to Jonathan, and Jonathan is the greatest threat to David. If you just look at it humanly, if you just look at it politically, it would seem like these two should be arch enemies. But instead, when David is in his biggest trouble, where does he run? To the one that you would expect would be his enemy, his rival, Jonathan. But he goes there, why? Because he's got a covenant. He's got the confidence and the strength 
of the covenant. They have made promises to one another, promises that are so deep and are so profound that he can go to the one who should kill him and turn him in. And he can go there with confidence and with trust because he has a covenant. Part of what we're seeing in the display of that is the strength of this idea of promise. That they are, as it were, blood brothers. They have bound themselves together in covenant. And even Jonathan, who should be loyal to his father, get in his shoes for just a moment. A son that's going to abandon his father, the king, of whom you would be the successor of, that feels like a long shot unless you have a covenant where it's then that Jonathan determines on the spot with David, listen, whatever it is you say, I will do for you. I believe what you said, Jonathan. You've got me. I'll be loyal to you because I know you're the Lord's anointed and I have with you a covenant. You've heard it said that blood is thicker than water. As if to say family ties are thicker than anything else, but what 1 Samuel 20 is telling us is that covenant is thicker than blood. The promises that are made with one another under God, united to him and his promises, is thicker than even the family ties that we bear with with each other. And here's the realization of how it's expressed. These two men have so yoked themselves to each other that the future of each is tied to their outcome. That's a remarkable thing. That the future of each man is tied to the outcome. I want you to see this secondly in the commitment of the covenant. There's a strength that's in this covenant, a strength that's so strong that you would have a son choose his friend over his father. A strength that's so strong you would have one who should be the rival become his friend. A strength of a covenant that's so strong that manifests itself in a friendship that it seems like nothing can separate because God is the glue at the middle of it and you can manifest it because of how they committed themselves to each other. I want you to see the commitment. Now we didn't read this section today, but you'll remember from 1 Samuel chapter 18. If you don't, you might just open up there with your Bibles, just turn back a page or two to 1 Samuel chapter 18. This is when this relationship began, the one between David and and Jonathan. It's there where we read of the forging of the covenant, and it would be really easy to read through that section and not think that much about it unless we unpack it. So I want to show you two verses there. First Samuel chapter 18, verses 3 and 4, listen to the way that these verses unfold. We're told that Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. A beautiful description of their connection. And Jonathan, notice, stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, reading that text, some of us may step back from it and think, oh, that's a really nice and kind thing for, for Jonathan to do, to give those things to David. He's clearly saying happy birthday to him. He's clearly blessing him with some kind gifts. Oh, no, no. That would be to miss what's actually going on in the text. What's really going on with the text is that Jonathan is giving his entire life to David. Let, let me show you how he's doing that. He gives him first the robe. What is the robe? Well, the robe is the picture and the symbol of being the crown prince. 
He's the one who is going to mount the throne after his father dies. He is a man who is in line with succession of taking over the country. The moment that Jonathan takes off his robe and he gives it to David, you know what he's saying? He's saying, I give you my status. I give you my position. I give you my future. Everything that is due to me, I acknowledge is due to you because you are the anointed of the Lord. You are the one who is to be the king over Israel. I submit myself to the will of the Lord and I put you in that position by displaying it through the giving of my robe. He didn't just say it with words. He gave him his robe. Now, if that wasn't enough, we're told that he also gives him his personal defenses. He gives him his armor and he gives him his belt. These are the two things that Jonathan would have used to protect himself against anybody who would have been his enemy. Well, I would like to, you to just sit there in Jonathan's shoes for a minute. Who would seem to be his greatest enemy? The one whom he's giving his defenses to. David himself, the one who is the rival to the throne, is the greatest enemy that Jonathan's facing right now. And what does Jonathan do? He gives to David all of his defenses. He gives him his armor. He gives him his belt as if to say, I'm dropping my guard. I'm living an open life with you, David. I'm going to give you the things that will protect you from me, but will leave me vulnerable to you. That's how, that's the action that I'm taking. Now, what's remarkable about that is it's not just a robe, his personal status, and it's not just his personal defenses. What else does he give him? He gives him his personal offense. He gives him his bow and he gives him his sword. I want you to picture this. Your arch rival, you give him your status, you give him things to protect him from you, and then you give him things that he can kill you with. Now you tell me if this is a covenant. This is a covenant. This is a covenant that's saying everything that you could use against me, I'm giving to you. I'm putting myself at your mercy. Now listen, when you enter into a covenant relationship, isn't what you do is yoking yourself with somebody else under the, the, the rule of the Lord where the outcome of their life is tied to your outcome. You're in a sense living at their mercy. Isn't that what marriage is? Isn't that what a marriage covenant is? You, you stand before a, a crowd of watching witnesses and you make vows about better or worse and sickness and health till death do you part. You are yoking yourself to the future of this person and you're saying, I'm giving you all my defenses. I'm giving you all the offenses. You're gonna see things about me you've never seen before. You're gonna see things that you're gonna be able to use against me if you desire it to do so. Or you're gonna be able to see things that you can forgive and bear with in covenant and I know that I can live utterly vulnerable with you and you will care for me. That's what you're doing in a marriage covenant. And that's what Jonathan and David are doing here in this friendship covenant. You notice when you, when you have a covenant, you usually have witnesses. You usually have people who see this happen. You actually have Jonathan in this text calling down a witness in verse 12. Notice, and Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. That was a key point when a covenant was made. Somebody had to see this happening. I was talking this week to actually in one of my classes here at New College Franklin. And I said, you know, it gets really weird if someone, if, two, if a guy and a girl have been dating one another and then they come in the next week into class and they were to say, hey, over the weekend we got married. They didn't tell anybody, we just, we just got married. 
it would get really weird. And the reason it would get really weird is we would say, did anybody see it happen? Are we sure it took place? It, it seems like somebody should have watched that. It seems like someone should be able to verify that. That's exactly the way a covenant works, is there must be a witness, and in this case, who is the witness? It's God himself. They're doing this before God's very eyes. Jonathan is saying, my life for yours. David's saying, your life for mine. That's the way that this is working. And in this commitment, we're seeing that it's not merely words, but it's an expression of the entirety of their lives. That they are willing to yoke themselves so deeply with each other that they know each other has their back no matter what happens. There's no fine print. And there's no getting out of the covenant. You know, when we go to sign a contract for anything, there's all the fine print. You know, I commit these things to you as long as you don't do any of these things over here. And if you do these things over here, then I'm going to get out of this. I got to find a loophole. I got to find an open door. I got to find a way to get out. This is why marriage is so scary because it's those words, till death do you part. It feels so long. It's like that's a long time. And a lot could happen between now and then. Like you could go crazy or I could go crazy. Like I could get Alzheimer's. You could battle depression. You could get the cancer diagnosis. You could cheat on me. You could for 50 years not pick up your socks. And I said, I'm in this. And there's no fine print. That's covenant. Feel it? It's strong. Can't get out of it easily. If you try to get out of it, it's messy. It's really messy. It's really difficult. And the reason it's so strong is because of the commitments that have been made. You're actually hemming yourself in. I'll sometimes say at a wedding ceremony, I hope that you as the couple hear, as it were, prison bars clanking behind you. That you're going to have a very difficult time getting out of this should you ever want to. And the way forward is to love the bars. And love what's inside of it. Because you can't get to what's inside of it until you commit to it. But once you commit to it, and if you really commit to it, there'll be days you wish you were on the other side of the bars. But at the end of your life, as you have steadfastly cared for another, you'll say it was the best thing you ever did. That's how covenant works. That's how covenant works. This is why even in the Exploring Cornerstone class, which we were talking in this morning a little bit about membership, is I said, you know, if you guys wind up committing to this local congregation as a member, you make a membership covenant, it's likely over the course of your life and existence with us that you will at times wonder, should I have done this? Can I get out of this? These people are weird. They are hard to deal with. They cramp my style. They are very encumbering. And it, it almost feels like someone's really thinking about it if they say something like, Nate, I, I love this church. I'm, I'm, I really, I think I want to commit to it. But when I think about being with these people for so long 
and serving them and caring for them and and really living out the promises that I'm making, I just don't know if I can do it. If someone said that, it would feel to me that they're thinking correctly. Like it's dawning on them. Like this is a real deal. You know, it's, I've said it before. It's like when the groom tells me before the wedding he's not nervous. I'm nervous <laughs> if he says that. Like you're stressing me out now. Do you, you have a clue what you're about to do? you have any idea? Now, you want the feeling of, I can't believe I'm doing this, but there's no way I can't not do this. Okay? That's where covenant is. I can't believe I'm giving him my armor. I can't believe I'm giving him my sword. I can't believe I'm giving him my robe. But how could I not submit to the Lord's will? How could I not submit to someone who also I know has my best interests at heart and I have his best interests at heart? And together in the yoking of that intimacy, we have linked our futures and our lives. And no matter what comes, we're going to see it through. See, that's really different than the imperial self of Christopher Lash. It's why we may even ask ourselves a little bit of the question, why would anyone ever do this? Why why would anyone ever enter into a situation uh, like this? I mean, it's terribly beautiful, but it's terribly frightening. And the realization is, as you read the story of David and Jonathan and you see the love, the brotherly covenantal love that the Lord has clearly given to them in their relationship... You're not being honest if you don't say, I want a friend like that. I want a friend like that. I want a church like that. I want people to love me for the warts and all that I am and for all of the ways that I'm going to fail. And I want to be in a relationship with them and love them in such a way that when they fail me, it's gracious and welcoming and restorative. And we're in this together. And it's not Johnny come lately and easy come, easy go, but it's patient and it's steadfast. And we're holding on to the end. Everybody wants that. Because that's the very heart of the covenant. You see, the strength of the covenant is it actually takes enemies like David and Jonathan and it turns them into friends. And you see that the covenant is even thicker than blood. The commitments of the covenant are so dramatic and so drastic and so the magnitude of them are so significant that they're giving away their entire life. And then the very center of the covenant or the heart of the covenant is the realization of love. Love, actually what the text calls hesed. It's the Old Testament word for steadfast love, for covenant love. That's exactly what Jonathan is actually saying to David. Or David, forgive me, is saying to Jonathan in verse 8, when he says, Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant with the Lord. That word deal kindly is the word hesed. It's, it's behave towards me in the love that we share. Behave towards me in a steadfastness that will not dissipate when the feelings are gone. Act towards me and serve me in a way that we've committed regardless of how things are going right now. I want to be loved and I want to be cared for in a way that will be unfaltering, unshakable, and never let go. And at the very center of this passage is Hesed. Building around this covenant, I want to show you this as we close. David can go to Jonathan 
when his life is under attack because he has a covenant that at the very center is hesed. A love that simply will not let go. A love that says no matter what you do and even if you totally betray me, I will stay with you. I will continue to pursue you. He can go to him because he has that. Jonathan ultimately believes David even when he questions him at the beginning of this text going, my father didn't talk to me about this because he has hesed at the very center of this covenant. Even though I don't know this, I can trust you that you're not trying to pull the wool over my eyes. Jonathan is even willing to get himself in trouble with his father. I want you to think about that. He's willing to go back to his father and talk about David going to Bethlehem for a sacrifice when he's actually hiding out behind some rocks. And he's able to reap the anger of his father on the behalf of David. And he actually gets a spear thrown in his direction for the possible taking of his own life. Why? Because he committed to David. He doesn't do that. He reaped all kinds of trouble because he was in covenant relationship that was founded on hesed because of that. And then in some of the most shocking verses, actually in the text, verses 14 to 16, David decides that he will actually make this covenant eternal. So much so that Jonathan appeals to David. You know what he says? He says, listen, when you come into power and if I'm still alive, will you keep me alive? And will you keep my offspring alive? And will you keep any of my relatives alive? And David said, you bet I will. Because this covenant is not just between me and you. It's between your offspring and my offspring. Now, the reason that's so important is that the custom of the day, when a king came into power, was that he would wipe out all the relatives of the former king. He would kill them. And the reason to do that is because they were rivals. And David is saying, no, I'm living, I'm willing to live for the duration of my kingship with those who would be potential rivals to kill me because I've made a covenant with you. You see, a covenant, when it's so deep, it says, I'm willing to receive your pain on your behalf. And I'm willing to receive the difficulties and the challenges of being in relationship with you and not levy them against you, but to bear them willingly on your behalf. Why? Because I love you. No, but why? Because I love you. That's it. That's it. And when that gets at the very center of the covenant and the operating of our life, there is something in our soul that says, yes, that's exactly what I want. Somebody who would love me that way. Somebody who would care for me that way. That when I screw up everything, and you will, and I will, and we will, they'll love me anyway. And they won't do it begrudgingly. They won't just grin and bear it. They'll do it with lavish abundance and kindness and steadfastness that in no way shakes or compromises their feelings and affections and commitments towards me. When you begin to drink in deeply the reality of that kind of covenant, it changes you. It completely changes you. Because now you realize that the relationship is not founded upon the efforts that I'm making. It's founded upon someone who simply loves me for me. 
And the realization is when we begin to experience loves like that, we're beginning to experience the gospel and the reality of the gospel. Because the gospel is a God who actually bears all the penalties for our covenant breaking. Who receives all of the punishment for everything that we've done wrong in relationship with him. And then he in return gives us everything that he loves in grace towards us. To draw us and woo us closer to him. Even in the midst of our sin and our brokenness. That's what he does. One of the grandest pictures of this is the book of Hosea. Hosea, a prophet of the Lord, who is called to marry a prostitute. To make covenant commitments to one who will give her love away to everyone else but the prophet. And the prophet is charged by God to go provide for the prostitute, care for the prostitute, woo the prostitute back, continuing to love her, uphold the entire covenant until it changes her. Until it changes her. Until the love melts her from the inside out. And she can't wrap her head around the fact that this one would continue to love me after I have adulterated in every direction on them. And yet they still love me. And they still pursue me. There is no way I can say no to a love like that. Somebody love me like that. Enter Jesus. That's exactly what he's doing for you, brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the way he's loving you. That's the covenant that he's keeping. And it is why David, who knew very, very well in Psalm 62, can say, steadfast love, hesed, is better than life. It is better than life. Listen, friends, if you have been loved this way, you can live or you can die. Because it is better than life. It is the very essence of what it means to live. And that is who we are to be as the body of Christ. In relationship to one another and in relationship to God. You know what that, you know what that means? That means that we don't sl- slip off easily from each other. But it means we stay in this. It means that we're committed to the long haul. It means that we don't just try to come in and wonder from a consumeristic mindset, am I going to like today or not? But how am I here in a worship service to serve both my God and those who are around me, to lay my life down for them, and to realize that increasingly as I become self-forgetful and love others in the way that I've been loved through Christ, my joy will explode in my heart. And the more that I get self-consumed with looking at it for myself, the more my contentment will diminish. Because at the very center of this is the gospel. And the gospel comes from life out of death. Out of sacrifice. Jesus said in John 13 that we will be known by what? Our love. Our love. 
Francis Schaeffer took those words from Jesus in John 13, and you know how he put it very provocatively? He said, it's, it's as if Jesus has given the world the right to judge whether or not the gospel is true on the basis of how we love each other. Well, that's a game changer. That's a game changer. That one of the leading witnesses of convincedness with regards to the truth of the gospel is how we're loving each other. And that as we don't love each other in the way that God has called us to, it casts doubt and aspersion towards Jesus and towards the gospel itself. Do you see how serious this is? We're in covenant with each other. This is, this is really important. But I want you to know as hard as that's going to be and as difficult as that's going to be and at times we are going to, as it were, leave our socks out for 50 years with each other. We're going to think, oh man, I got to go through that again. Yes, bear with each other, Paul says. As you do that, at the end of your life and you look back on, a, on the years of Sabbaths and the years of home fellowship group meetings, and the years of Sunday schools and men's and women's Bible studies and all the weird potluck dinners where you weren't even sure what you were eating at times, you're going to look back and you're going to say, God has been so good. He has been so good. And there's an intimacy and there's a connection that you cannot experience except for a being committed in love for a long time till death do we part. So let's be that church. What do you say? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, please confirm this. Please let your spirit speak to the hearts in the way that needs to be spoken. You, you only know that. I don't. And so I would simply ask you that you would give us that kind of grace right now. And show us how it is that you want us to become the people who look like what we've been talking about today. Help us in that. And when we fail, remember your covenant. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.